You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Cybersecurity has become one of the biggest priorities for businesses and governments as practically all of life migrates its way to data centers and the cloud. In this episode of the McKinsey Podcast, recorded at the Yale University Cyber Leadership Forum in March, we catch up with two leading thinkers on security issues. Sam Palmasano is the former CEO of IBM and vice chair of the U.S. Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. Nathaniel Gleischer is the head of cybersecurity strategy at Illumio, a data and cloud security company. First up from the forum is Sam Palmasano, who, in this wide-ranging conversation with McKinsey's Mark Sorrell, makes the case that strong cybersecurity programs are critical for improved innovation and economic growth. Sam, thank you for joining us today. I want to talk a little bit about your work on the Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. What was the original mandate? What was the process by which you kind of came up with your findings? And what were some of the most surprising results? Thank you, Roberta. The thing was that President Obama had reached the conclusion that that the uh, digital economy or the internet is so fundamental now to economic growth in society that something needed to be done to make some recommendations to enhance it or strategically position it for the future. A great example is the internet of things because it's no longer just phones and uh, desktop computers, it's everything in life. You know, It's, it's self-driving cars, it's thermostats, it's music players, it's cameras, it's everything in life. So now you take this infrastructure and you make it billions of things that are computers, which are smart devices, but that's what they are. The chips with software and with all the vulnerabilities, unless you designed for uh, security from the beginning, and you've taken this problem, you've put it on steroids. So the complexity there is one of getting consensus to go fast and address the issues prior to billions of things being out there that aren't secure, which is the path we're headed down. How do you think about what the private sector, and to some extent the social sector, need to do now to be part of that? We need to form a private-public collaboration. And the reason for it, the government doesn't have the skills to do this themselves. We spent nine months crawling through their statements of skill, and they don't. I mean, they can argue all they want, they don't. That doesn't mean that elements of government don't have some skill. Take the intelligence agencies out of this discussion and get to that commercial side, doesn't have the capability. They need the capability, so you had to form a partnership. The the skills exist in the academic community and in the research universities and in the technology community. Did you all as a commission see a model in the market today for what that collaboration could look like? There are established entities within government that are a combination of academic, private sector, and government. The technical, a lot of the technical communities come together. When Keith Alexander ran the Cyber Command Center, there were probably 20 of us that met once a quarter for five, six years. So the same guys that were running IBM, Google, Dell, Microsoft, HP, Horizon, you know, uh, plus all the government or appropriate people would meet quarterly, and the technical people would meet even more often to go tackle some of these issues. And uh, it was self-funding. I mean, we uh, uh, we solved problems just by pitching in because it was in the best interest of everyone to solve some of these issues. Clearly, the industry, because you want to expand and grow, and to really do this, though, this is going to require funding. But this to solve the problem we're talking about, it's going to require 
some amount of money in a research, like a DARPA or related fund. Pick something like that as the funding source that government can coordinate and then convene this body uh, and then do the work, as we, as we would suggest. Now, the work is going to get complicated because there's two pieces to the work. One is to solve, let's say, for example, let's come up with a standard for the Internet of Things that you would put in this device, this object, really, an object. And then within that object, right, you'd have this standard, but then you'd also have a nutrition label on the standard. You know, we call it the cyber star. You know, it's like, you know, the health seal that says, okay, if you're the manufacturer and you've complied with these standards, you get the star, you get the cyber star. There were also guys that recommended a thing called clean pipes. Now, clean pipes has a lot of policy implications, a lot of uh, criminal justice systems implications. But technically, you could create a clean path, and you could have a secure path, and you could argue for certain areas where life is threatened, I, you know, autonomous vehicles or drones or things where people could actually be seriously injured or die. You'd want to secure a clean path. I mean, you don't want this on the open internet. I mean, about creating a separate secure yeah, you, environment yeah. for these sort of privileged parts of the ecosystem. Right. Think of it as a commercial VP, a virtual private network. Yep. But beyond that, put yep. that on steroids from an encryption and security perspective. Yep. And so for all these Internet of Things device, health, heart monitor, things you're putting in your body, pacemakers, defibrillators, those kinds of things, not Fitbits that you wear on your wrist, you know, I mean, but serious things that could do serious harm, like, you know, stop your heart. You want to have information flowing in a secure way, in an encrypted, secure way. Now, that doesn't mean everything should be that, clearly. I mean, if you're sharing your photos with friends, I don't think you need that level right. uh, or cost associated with those kinds of technologies. Right. You're basically saying, at some level, there should be a tiering of internets to acknowledge the degree of security required for different pieces of right. the ecosystem to communicate. That is a solution to the problem. Mm. Now, you have to make it commercially viable. Mm -hmm which gets you into things like net neutrality. But if you just, if you were to technically solve the problem, mm -hmm. right, you would begin to architect portions of the internet. You can't go recreate the past. It's just too old. It's too cobbled together. You know, let that be what it is, but anything that's life-threatening or takes down the infrastructure or the world economy, let's just start there. But the premise or the assumption is that you really can't really solve this in the internet as it exists today. It just was too complicated. It's too convoluted, it's too open by design. That's why it was so successful, because it was an open architecture. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had all these debates, oh, the technical guys. They said, look, we used to do this, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, ATMs never got hacked. Money didn't start spitting out in, you know, on the curb and stuff, because it was a secure connection. It was, it was a proprietary network. I mean, we know how to do it technically. There are people that did these things for years, right? Mm -hmm. But we've moved on to an open, innovative system, which is terrific because it drives innovation at a much more rapid pace and it also gives people more economic opportunity to participate. I mean, that's a big plus. Mm -hmm. But certain areas where you're dealing with, I say, major societal issues, I believe we ought to go back to some of the classical approaches to how you design the systems. So most people today would say, if I had to place a bet on who's going to gain ground on whom and put space between themselves, it's the attackers that you'd think would continue to distance themselves from the defenders in terms of their capabilities. Do you agree with that? 
80% of the cybersecurity uh, issues that have occurred in the commercial world are internal process and people. It's not just disgruntled employees who got fired and therefore they gave somebody their access codes. It's also people who didn't protect their access codes. Or they tape it to their computer. Or they leave it in the top of their desk. I mean, the cleaning people can go get the stuff. You'll get rid of half of your problems as an enterprise if you just train your folks and put controls in place. So it's a combination of monitoring, process training, audit people, obviously, if you, did you follow the process? So there's an accountability in the system. That'll clean up a lot of the stuff in the commercial world. Password authentication um, and endpoints. That's it. If the commercial side, of, civilian side of government, .gov, did those things, they would clean up probably 95% of their problems and save a ton of money, too, by the way. We also talked about this idea, which never got traction in the commission report. It was a good idea where you basically would create fundamentally a national ID, like a credit bureau. You could create this national ID foundry where you, was, like you get your birth certificate, you also get your digital identity at birth. Right? And that digital identity is secure and protected. You can modify for simple things, sharing your photos on the internet, or you can modify for very sophisticated things like financial transactions. Why right? didn't it catch on? Uh, and the commission itself, yeah. what we did was said further studies should take place, and we recommended that Treasury would look at further look at creating this kind of an entity. We also looked at commercial insurance as well, and that the purpose of commercial insurance was that if you, had, if you agreed on the standards and therefore you complied with those standards, you should be able to get either higher liability coverage at a lower rate than somebody who didn't. Our view was that would drive up the adoption rate mm -hmm. because people are going to want to find an insurance policy for cyber. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen. How do you get these companies to make the investments to move up the risk protection curve? Well, you make it to their advantage by having insurance that says if you comply we can audit those standards, and if you've complied with those standards, like burglar alarm systems or fire alarms in your home, I mean, if you comply with those standards, you're going to get higher liability coverage at a lower rate. I mean, that's, you know, to make it an economic-based system versus a government-mandated system. The commission was very biased towards private sector solutions versus government-mandated solutions. You need a private sector or an economically-driven set of motivations to solve the problem. This right. has been a fascinating hey, conversation. Hey. We're out of time, I'm afraid, but... Thank you, Sam, for taking the time to be with us well, today. Well, thank you. It was great being with you. Next up from the forum is Nathaniel Gleischer, who describes how businesses can learn a lot from the model of protection used by the U.S. Secret Service. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you for joining us today from the McKinsey Podcast. No problem. I'm glad that I can join. Your company has been providing cyber options for four or five years now. And I'm wondering how you've seen the market change uh, over that time in terms of maybe what customers are looking for or um, technologies that have emerged. There used to be a perception that cybersecurity was sort of black magic, particularly outside of the technical community, and that outside of that community people would sort of say, I don't understand this, just make it work. Right? <laughs> right? As long as you don't hear anything, no news is good news. And uh, the increasing scope and scale of breaches and the degree to which organizations are moving into these exposed environments has changed that. Um, if you look at business leaders, I think they are very focused on how do you quantify the risks that, they, that you face and how do you, um, how do you measure the benefit that you're getting from the solutions you invest in. It's a much more quantification-driven industry than it used to be. I don't know that we're very good at quantification yet, but the desire to quantify is, I think, an important change. 
apart from quantification, are there other hot topics in cyber that you're, you're seeing or managing right now? Sometimes I think we do cybersecurity sort of like fourth graders play soccer. Chase the ball across the field, the whole group sort of runs. So there are always hot topics. Um, I think what's interesting to me is that we've known for a while there are a few steps that if you took them, environments would be much more secure. If you think about encrypting data, using strong passwords, whitelisting your applications, segmenting your environment, patching your vulnerabilities. And uh, people generally haven't done that because it's been hard to figure out how to do that at scale across these large organizations. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we face in cybersecurity today is that we don't really have a single coherent strategic model to describe how to protect an environment. There are a lot of tactical models. So if you look at the SANS Top 20, if you look at NIST, if you look at some of these other frameworks, they will tell you you should be investing in encryption. You should be investing in segmentation. You should be investing in certain kinds of detection. They'll tell you all the tools you should use, and you can think about how to line them up. But it's very tactical. It's hard to find a model that lets you pull back and think about the threat as a whole. I'm starting to see groups of companies trying to solve that problem, trying to think, how do you do these steps that don't seem all that sexy, but that actually drive to security? What are some of the um, potential remedies? If you look at security disciplines through the ages, um, whether it's law enforcement, executive protection, physical security for locations, military security, any of these sort of well-built disciplines, the foundation of every security discipline is understanding the environment you're protecting and exerting control over that environment. In cybersecurity, we are not good at understanding the environment we're defending. Most organizations don't understand their network. They don't understand what's connected and what's communicating with what. And because of that, they have relatively few options to control that environment. I mentioned before a few simple things people could do to strengthen their environment. Those are all about control. And what I mean by control, people often think there's sort of prevention, keeping the bad guys out, and then there's detection and response, catching them once they get in. Those are both important components. And I think in general today, people would tell you, you can't invest all in one or the other, but prevention by itself isn't enough. People are going to get in. But I think what people miss in that debate is the reason detection and response works is because you understand your environment and you control it. If you don't know where your high value assets are, and if you don't know what connects to them, how someone would access them, it's incredibly hard to know what you need to protect. And if you don't have the resources to control that, you're sort of defending an open field. So you have hundreds and hundreds of paths you need to defend, potential connections you need to worry about, and the attacker gets to move first. right? Um, on the flip side, if you invest to understand your environment first and control your environment first, it actually makes detection and response better. What are some ways to identify the the, the crown jewels, the things that really do matter. I can imagine that that could be a, a, an incredibly difficult task given all the, the assets that companies manage. It's different for every organization to some degree, but it's about understanding business risk. Right? The question is, what are the assets that I defend or that my business relies on, such that if they were exposed or compromised, it would fundamentally harm the way I do business. And um, whether that's 
healthcare data about your customers or customer information, whether that's the systems on which your business runs, whether that's the exchanges across which you connect. Every business has a different set of factors they need to judge, but often, if you think in terms of business risk, we're pretty good at figuring that out, and we've been for a while, because businesses have been measuring and concerned about risk for quite some time. Um, it's just a question of translating that and understanding the technical implications. A model that I like to use when I think about this, actually, is the way the Secret Service protects the president. The president is a lot like a high-value asset in a data center, in that he's very valuable, very targeted, and also very exposed. The Secret Service doesn't get to take the president, put him in a box somewhere, and have him not talk to anyone. Constantly talking to people, so the job is really about managing risk which is similar to the way we're protecting assets in the data center. When the Secret Service is protecting the president, if you imagine the president speaking in an auditorium, right? the Secret Service shows up months before the president is going to be there. And the first thing they do is they map the auditorium to understand the president's going to be here, speaking on this stage. Here are all the attack vectors. Here are all the ways someone could reach the president. An auditorium is built for openness, so there are going to be a lot. And the Secret Service actually tries to control that environment to shrink the number of attack vectors in place. Right? They reduce the number of attack vectors. And the reason they do this is, if, as we said before, if you have to watch 100 attack vectors, it's really expensive and you're really spread out thin. If you have to watch 20, you're in much better shape as a defender. So you can say, right, we don't need this doorway open and no one's going to sit in this portion of the auditorium. You can close things down to simplify your environment. And that's important for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason is it makes detection much easier. Because if there's a section of the auditorium where no one is supposed to sit, that doesn't necessarily mean no one will show up there. People always do strange things. But if someone does, you know they've broken a policy. It's not a false positive. There's no risk of confusion. You can simply react. Right? And it lets the Secret Service act much more quickly. Because rather than basing their actions on uncertain analysis, they're basing it, they, they create firm boundaries, and when someone breaks a boundary, they know what to do, right? So if the Secret Service wanted to, they have a lot of resources, they could put a metal detector at every seat in the auditorium, right? They could put one at every single seat, they could get the best metal detector in the world. The problem is they would never do that. And the reason is they would get thousands and thousands of alerts. And lots of them would be because someone had a particularly heavy watch on, or had change in their pocket, right? Whatever it might be. And in order to test those alerts, they would have to send Secret Service agents out into the auditorium to check each one. And it turns out that Secret Service agents are really expensive, and they're rare. It takes a long time to train them. They're hard to find. And so what you really want to do is you want to take your precious resource, your Secret Service agents, and you want to direct them at the hardest, smallest slice of the problem. So take that and apply it to the data center. If you are detecting everything everywhere, and you don't have control over the environment, you're going to get a lot of alerts. And the statistics we see right now back that up, right? Organizations get 500, 1,000 critical alerts a day, mm -hmm. which is a huge number of alerts that supposedly you have to deal with. Right. And on average, organizations say they have the capacity to investigate something like 1% of them. So you're investigating 1% of all these critical alerts. Quickly, you start to turn things off because that data is dirty. So if you're following the model, you would do the same thing the Secret Service does. You don't put a metal detector everywhere. What you do is you control the environment. You limit down the places people can be, the paths they can take, so you know where to watch. right? And so you know if this is my high value asset in my data center, then if anything strange happens there, obviously it should be my highest priority. 
if anything strange happens in something connected to it, that would might be a secondary priority. And you can start to prioritize these alerts and focus on the problems that matter more. What are some of the policies or regulations that are emerging that business executives need to concern themselves with? In a lot of ways, 2017 will be a year of regulation in cybersecurity. Not exactly the regulation people think about. I don't know that it'll come from DC. SWIFT, the financial sort of transactions organization, recently put out controls that all of its members need to comply with to segment and protect their SWIFT application. This is in response to all the criminal activity targeting SWIFT applications, right? Um, that's one. The um, New York DFS, the financial regulator, put out controls around cybersecurity just out a month and a half ago now, quite recently. Um, the European Union recently put out a new general data protection regulation, which has a whole range of controls built into it, but uh, there are specific pieces around where is data stored and how is it stored, which raise serious concerns for companies. There's a lot of pieces coming out from different places that depending on what industry you sit in, you need to watch. The pattern that I'm seeing though is each of these has components that require organizations to do a better job exerting control over the data in their possession. I think organizations have sort of said, my data just pools in all these places. I don't even know where it is. It moves through these systems too fast for me to follow. And it's been acceptable for companies not to know answers to these technical questions. You're seeing these regulations start to come out that push back on that. There's this increasing requirement on organizations to understand what's happening in those systems and where that data is going. Nathaniel, so many new business models are data and analytics driven. So how might this increased oversight affect companies' ability to innovate? There's this old sort of apocryphal joke, right, that if we built cars like we built computers, cars would go 500 miles an hour, get 500 miles a gallon, and blow up once a week. We've made this choice historically around computer and internet innovation that the consequences of unreliability aren't all that high. We'd rather have rapid innovation. But what's happening now is more and more you see technical, the technical world, the internet world, colliding or reconnecting with the physical world, whether it's autonomous cars, whether it's health innovation like you're saying, whether it's integrating smart solutions into the home, whether it's integrating smart solutions into our transportation framework. There are more and more opportunities integrating technology and smart solutions into the financial systems that our society runs on. There are more and more opportunities for surprisingly small bugs to cause very big chain effects in the physical world. And so the push and pull that you're seeing is how do you maintain the pace of innovation that has been so valuable and such an engine of economic growth and engine of competitive edge for us while still mitigating the risks of all of these autonomous systems and, and sort of more and more sophisticated systems that are impacting the physical world. What are the opportunities for VCs and startups in this changing environment? I think that there are huge opportunities in pointing artificial intelligence solutions and orchestration solutions at problems that are incredibly hard to do at scale for large organizations. We tend to think of cybersecurity as a technology solution because that's sort of convenient. But the truth is, at the end of the day, it's really an organizational solution. If you only have one computer, 
I mean, obviously, anyone can make a computer secure by turning it off. But if you have one computer, if you have one system, a sophisticated uh, defender is going to be much better able to protect that than if you have a thousand systems and hundreds of employees, or ten thousand systems and hundreds or thousands of employees. The challenge is getting large organizations to operate in a coherent fashion when large organizations are made up of people and we aren't always good at operating in a coherent fashion. What organizations really need and where there's real potential is how do you make it so those things we talked about at the beginning, encryption, strong passwords, segmentation, whitelisting applications, patching vulnerabilities can be done reliably, consistently, and at scale. Because if we could do that, we would solve a large chunk of our security problem. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. To learn more about our work in cybersecurity, visit our website at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.